We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello, everybody out there in the archaeology podcast land. Merry, Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel for the uh, Rock Art Podcast, the 27th episode with Shane Davis. He's a cultural resource manager, got his master's at San Francisco State. We'll talk about the Harappan figures of Indus Valley from 3500 BC. Let's poke on that mystery. Well, welcome to the Rock Art Podcast. This is episode 27. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and it's wonderful to have continued for about half the year so far on a weekly podcast. We are blessed to have Shane Davis coming to you to speak about his research where he received a master's thesis on studies of East Indian figurines from the prehistoric period. And we'll hear much, much more about those figurines and the nature of his research. Hey, Alan, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Shane, blessing. We're we're now BFFs. Absolutely. (laughs) Shane works with me with a... um, uh, one of my new associations with a, I, I guess this is fair, it's a free advertisement for a company called MGE, and they're involved with cultural resource management. And Shane is another one of those archaeologists that are in the business of cultural resources management. Is that right, Shane? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, MGE, uh, mainly uh, the tree removal company, but we we do a lot of cultural resource management within that and environmental work in general. Uh, we have biologists, geologists, and just uh, we, we kind of have the full range there. And I guess there's a sister company that I understand it does about $500 million, $500 million worth of business. That's M- <laughs> MFE. Two of them, yeah. And they have uh, thousands of employees. So with that, I'll segue back and ask you the million dollar question that opens this discussion. Shane, how did you ever get involved in this uh, thing we call archaeology, anthropology, study of indigenous people, or even in the broader way, cultural resource management? And 
understanding a bit about symbolism, art, history, and and uh, all things intermixed with those very broad themes. Well, um, since I was a really young child, I think I'd have to credit my mother more than anybody else. Uh, she tried to instill a, a sense in me that the world was enormous and uh, there were all different types of people in it. Yeah, I, I think I just kind of uh, latched on to um, uh, different things going on at the time. You had the, uh, the Nat Geo for kids, right? You had all mm-hmm. that. She'd take me to museums and... Uh, yeah, it just uh, it kind of felt natural, and this this also coincided with a love for digging. For digging, yeah, <laughs> a, love, a love for digging. Now, please, yes. please explain. I will. It's I was one of those really weird kids that you know you go to the museum and see dinosaur bones, and you know I'd come home and and go look for them. <laughs> so you, so you, you dig, know. you dig in your yeah. backyard. Yeah, there's actually a, a space in my back towards the very back where. I, I had it all set up. I had a shovel and, and uh, I'd sometimes go back there and look for, you know, <laughs> gold or dinosaur bones or what, whatever, uh, you know, six-year-old thinks might be in his backyard. Fantastic. From a very early age, you were instilled in a sort of a sense of wonder at uh, the world and history, prehistory, and even the sense of digging. Where did you go from there? Where were you raised? What uh, part of the country? I was born in upstate New York, but when I was nine, my family moved to uh, Central California. Yeah, I, I think that that move kind of uh, cemented, uh, in in my mind at least, how big the world was. You know, uh, moving from one end of the country to the other uh, at such an early age. Where'd you go to school? Oh, um, in in Turlock, California, at uh, Turlock Junior High and then uh, Pittman High School. Okay. And yeah, as I got older, I, I was better at some subjects and better than those and others. Social studies, history. I always liked the stories behind uh, world history, you know. Mm-hmm. I was always good at remembering like really random facts in my head, stuff that was never really useful for anything. Fantastic. So you took the random fact gathering competency and translated into a, a passion for history, anthropology, art, etc. Where'd you go to college? So I went to college at San Francisco State University. And, and why there? You know, I uh, I think it was something about the the vibe of the Bay Area sure. that kind of uh, pulled me in that direction. You know, when I was in high school, I'd take trips out to San Francisco and get lost for a few days and come back. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it just, uh, it just felt right. What, what was your major in your undergraduate work? That was anthropology. Anthropology, okay. Mm-hmm. And... What specific aspect of the field of anthropology enthralled you? Um, well, I mean, it's it's all very interesting. I, I can't say there's any um, aspect of it that doesn't interest me, um, but archaeology in particular definitely did just because it kind of meshes the hard science with the humanities and uh, really um, can explain a lot about why the world is the way it is. So you, you got a bachelor's and a master's there at, at that college, the, the university? Yeah. Yeah, and, I got both from um, my uh, bachelor's and master's at uh, San Francisco State. And and where did you where did you do field work? In what particular regions of the uh, country and the world? So my uh, my field school was actually in Belize. Wow, and how was that? Yeah. Oh, incredible! I actually got to uh, excavate a, a site that had been identified only the year before, uh, and it was it was deep in the jungles um, on the border of Guatemala. 
And, uh, you know, if, if uh, there were certain parts you, you really wouldn't have known, it was a, a small city unless, you know, it was, it was pointed out to you. But we, uh, we got to excavate uh, the top of a, a large pyramidal structure. Wow. We, uh, we even uh, found somebody at the top of it. You found somebody. Was yeah, it lost? yeah. Were they lost? Were they lost? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, so the, the, the Maya traditionally would bury their relatives under the floor. So we, uh, excavating down into the pyramid, we did come across a subadult. I believe it was female. Okay. Was there, was there grave goods or other elements to the uh, burial? Uh, there were no grave goods on that one, but something that sticks out in my mind, uh, and I always thought it was pretty cool, she had um, jade inlaid in the teeth. Really? Wow. Yeah. That sounds rather dramatic and, and wonderful. I'm sure it was absolutely beautiful down there in Belize, wasn't it? Oh, it was. Yeah. You've got uh, mosquitoes like helicopters, but other than them, yeah, <laughs> it's a really beautiful place. So after the Belize field experience, you decided to do some work for your master's thesis in something that kind of is akin to rock art. Tell us about it. Yeah, so I did my thesis on interpreting uh, the Harappan figurines. Um, and these are the anthropomorphic figurines from the Bronze Age city of Harappa uh, in modern-day Pakistan. And what is the uh, what is Bronze Age? What is it chronologically so people might understand yeah, so chronologically, in the Indus Valley, the Bronze Age occurred around 3,300 BCE. Wow. So, so, so a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Only a few years ago, yeah. Only a few. So, yeah. And, and there was a, a culture called the Harappans, that's the name of it. What type of a culture were they? Were they sedentary, agriculturalists? Was this a sophisticated culture? or? Uh, oh, very. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that that was really the archaeology of the Indus Valley was really what drew me to these figurines in the first place. The Harappans had a state level society and they were big on agriculture. And towards the uh, zenith of the or the, the pinnacle, if you want to call it that, of the culture, they had a heavy trend towards standardization of material culture. But, you know, there's there's always a lot of unknown that goes with the archaeology in that part of the world and the, the Indus Valley especially because we know that they had uh, symbols that they've, they've uh, run through computer programs and figured out that, that they're not randomized. Uh, they, they comprise a language, but uh, we can't decipher it. They had monumental architecture for large public works like granaries and uh, city drainage systems. But no temples or palaces. Um, after 150 years of archaeology in the region, there just uh, isn't really a case to be made that there was really much hierarchy there uh, at all. You know, you're talking about people with a sophisticated uh, metallurgical knowledge, but, we, you know, there are no chains, uh, no, no bars, like might be on a prison or something, no armories to, uh, to equip an army. And pretty negligible differences in burial goods, which if there was a, a marked difference, of course, you know, it might indicate that there were some people of a higher position than others. But in general, we're, it's, it's unique in the archaeological record in that we have this agricultural state level society that seems certainly more egalitarian than others. So less stratified than what you might expect for a state level oh, yeah. society. And typically, when we think of state societies, we think of pyramids and monumental architecture. 
but also kings and queens or priests or different levels of society in a rather That's right. elaborately structured socio-political organization with those that have and the haves and the have-nots. And it sounds like things were, as you said, greatly egalitarian and uh, very, very different than what we, what we might expect. Yeah, yeah, it, that that's, was definitely my conclusion. And um, one of the interesting parts about this was that, you know, like, like there were no temples or palaces. We also haven't found any statues. And usually when you have kings and queens, of course, you have statues. Mm-hmm. But what we do have are uh, an enormous corpus of terracotta figurines. And so um, that's what I did my thesis on. So these were pottery figurines. They weren't carved. They were molded, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Terracotta. Terracotta. And what is, what is terracotta per se? Oh, uh, heated clay. Heated clay. So mm-hmm. how, how big were these figurines? On average, I'd say each each were about maybe a foot tall. Okay. Um, the, the larger ones, the smaller ones were, were maybe a few inches. Why did you decide to use that as a subject matter for your thesis? What was it that kind of drew you to this particular culture and this particular data set? Uh, well, the, the questions it could answer um, about the culture and in that a culture that we we know they have writing, but it hasn't been deciphered, and just a lot of questions about who these people were, uh, and so I definitely felt that it could be better understood by looking at the representations of themselves. Nice. Um, and so that's that's what I looked at, and I was uh, I was pretty fortunate that all of that information about them had been compiled by Jerry Clark. She's a researcher out of Harvard mm-hmm. and published on extensively, and so. That was mostly what I looked at. So it was readily available. How big of a collection of Harappa figurines is there that exists? Oh, uh, there are thousands. At Harappa, it was 2,550-something, <laughs> um, just in uh, just outside the city walls. They would, uh, they would deposit them with the, uh, the domestic refuse. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, we're almost at the end of the first segment. So I think at the the beginning of this next segment, we'd like to understand more about the theoretical orientations of various people and how they perhaps, what they think about that culture and this figurine complex. That that makes some sense, doesn't it? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I did go over that um, in detail in my thesis. Yeah. And I think that will help us understand rock art to some extent. Because we're dealing again with material culture, with art, with the depiction of the human form, and also even with the uh, issue of gender or sex of these figures. See you on the flip-flop, gang. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart. 
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast. This is episode 27, and we're in the second segment now. We're interviewing Shane Davis, a, a professional cultural resource manager, gentleman with a master's from San Francisco State, and who's talking about his research on a culture called the Harappan culture and his uh, examination of an extensive state-level society and their molded clay figurines. How's that, Shane? Uh, you, you've got it, Alan. There you go. <laughs> so Sh- Shane's going to tell us a bit about what people think about this culture and how they approached an understanding of these thousands upon thousands upon thousands of figurines. The figurines from Harap originally were interpreted as uh, mother goddess figurines, which is very common for uh, these artistic expressions to be interpreted as. And I, I think uh, the uh, really the person to, to break away from that was Sherry Clark. I had mentioned her uh, before. She was the one that compiled all the data. And there, there are several uh, approaches to understanding figurines. Yeah, the most common was the uh, mother goddess approach, which uh, takes kind of a a priori approach to interpreting them. It's where without necessarily having substantial evidence, all of these figurines represent gods or goddesses. And this is, this is fairly easy to argue and, until you really look at it and say, okay, well, how do you know? How, what, what is the evidence for this? If these were goddesses, were the bulk of them gendered or had anatomical sexual traits that showed that they were females or no? Ah, so the earliest recording of these was by Mortimer Wheeler back in the early 1900s. And he didn't actually take uh, account of how many males versus how many females were depicted versus how many animals so not really the best kind of the seat, <laughs> kind of kind of seat of the pants kinds of stuff not 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 very not operational criteria not really quantified more of a a qualifying or you know sort of overarching interpretation exactly but then moving moving forward when you looked at them did you then drill down into the metrics of these matters yes i did so first thing was to to really get a, a good count of uh, male versus female from fairly early on i realized that 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 wasn't entirely doable to start 33 percent of the collection uh, had been broken upon deposition okay. so you know you've got random arms and legs and heads and whatnot and then there's there's uh, certain features anatomical features depicted uh, that that weren't may be entirely clear. Mm-hmm. So for example, in, in her work, uh, Sherry talks about um, terracotta breasts as, as symbolizing female versus terracotta nipples symbolizing male. Um, mm-hmm. But it, there's really not that much difference between them, um, certainly not to where they would be diagnostic on a, on a set, like a sex basis. Okay. So the gender classifications were not readily identifiable or readily classifiable based on operational reproducible attributes. 
Exactly. And she she had made the argument uh, that these anthropomorphic figurines represented the Harappan's attempt to kind of transcend sex and transcend gender. Um, but the, what I found is if, if you can't even attribute, you know, a, a number to how many male, how many female, you, you can't say they're being used to transcend male and femaleness. Exactly. So here's here's thousands of figures. We have mm-hmm. them from a culture and we're trying to classify them. What were some of the other theoretical orientations or ways to sort of approach the problem of meaning and function for the figurines? Well, another uh, line of inquiry I followed was their context. These figurines were never found in burials. Uh, They were never found in any kind of uh, shrines. The Harappans did have pits under their floors where, uh, you know, in each household uh, where they would stash valuables, gold, silver, semi-precious stones, the like. Um, and they were never found in there either. So if they had real value at one time, it, it didn't carry over. At some point, that value was revoked and they were uh, deposited the, with the city refuse. Um, so, so context, uh, archaeological context uh, definitely went into it. So how did you go about figuring out something about this if context was not that relatively important? Obviously, they weren't associated with some sort of feature that had that sung or produced some sort of religious metaphor. How could we figure out what these are? It's a great question. <laughs> so we can say that they, they didn't have an overtly religious context, but the fact that their inclusion with the domestic debris was so so prevalent it suggests that that they had a household use, although they were they were never found in any households either. They were always in the trash. So it, it begs the question, you know, was was there a specific ritual that went along with them? Mm-hmm. The people would take them, do something with them, and they would never leave them around. They would always make sure they were outside the city walls, actually, in, in refuse deposits. And a lot, the other stuff uh, in the context... Uh, you see a lot of common pottery. You see a lot of ash, uh, a lot of animal bones. So I think one of the things you and I have spoken about about this was trying to think about it using some sort of cognitive anthropology or cognitive neuroscience approach. What is that all about? That's right. Yeah. Um, so the uh, the cognitive approach for figurines was really pioneered by my advisor, Doug Bailey. And he, uh, he identified uh, three traits um, in particular, uh, that that gave these figurines kind of a life: anthropomorphism, uh, miniaturism, and three dimensionality. Okay. And that uh, when these three things are combined, um, they have certain pan-human effects on the handler. So, regardless of whether the person was uh, alive in Bronze Age Pakistan or modern-day America, um, it, it would have had somewhat similar cognitive effects. That was his um, his argument. And uh, I found that this uh, this really was the best way to understand these. So give me an operational example of those attributes and how that works out. So it's the way you the way you hand, it's kind of way you handle or touch the figures, how we sort of grok their understanding. Right. Okay, that's right. And and that uh, sense of touch comes into it, uh, and it is if if not primary, certainly on the same level with vision. Um, that that haptic understanding of of the human body that that once these are produced, people could now have. There's also something to be said about abstraction and compression. 
and and this I I believe this applies to rock art as well. Okay. That the artist can only produce the human form uh, in so much detail, and so they have to uh, select some attributes over others and kind of compress them uh, down. And so in in this way, the whatever subject the artist is depicting, it inevitably becomes symbolic, a symbol for something. So in other words, the particular anatomical features that are emphasized have some significance. That's right. Some sort of symbolic significance. So on the Harappan figures, which features of the human form were most emphasized? So interestingly enough, for many of the figurines, the, the features most emphasized are the, the head and the uh, ornate headdresses and hairstyles that you see them created with. Um, and also the, the hips in particular are also a point of emphasis. And when you look at these, these attributes that have been selected for, it can be just as telling to look at the parts that are de-emphasized. And on the figurines, uh, the feet and the legs were definitely de-emphasized. The hands, there were never really any hands. They were de-emphasized. And even the faces were very, certainly not as complex as they could have been. Well, in terms of the headdresses, I know that at least with my own experience, when you see these elaborate headdresses, does that sometimes intimate leadership or headship or prestige or anything like that? Or am I going down the wrong track? It's hard to say because in this cultural context, there doesn't seem to be too much of <laughs> obvious uh, archaeologically provable leadership, kingship, queenship, whatever you want to call it. Right. But uh, many of these figurines did have have that. So that in itself may speak to the egalitarian nature, just that, you know, there, there wasn't uh, a few big ones and a bunch of little ones, rather. It was they, they all seemed somewhat standardized in, in that way, at least. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. If I'm thinking back to my own research, like in the Kosos with the decorated animal human figures, many of them, I, I don't know if you, I would say most, have a fairly elaborate headdress to them. They're feathered or they have some sort of uh, ornaments or they're holding some sort of a, a baton or a weapon. And those are more in the realm of the animal-human conflation. So then there's, it's obviously not a, a human person or an ancestor necessarily, but in that instance, you would think that we're dealing with some sort of a, I call it a therianthrope, an animal-human figure that may be more akin to an ancestor or a deity or something along those lines. Does that make any sense? It does, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's in my research I, I didn't I didn't find that that was the case and, and only because it, it would have there wasn't really a, a line of reasoning where I could connect these figurines to, to such ideas. Right. It sounds like they're they're humans. Now they could have been ancestor figures or ancestors or, or some sort of ancestor worship because they are akin to humans, are they not? Yeah, yeah, they're they're definitely human representations. Although, interesting enough, and we've we've discussed this, the motif, the master of the animal motif, yeah, or uh, the the man with the horns that that mm-hmm. can be seen yeah. cross culturally, is also depicted on. I think it's ten, yeah, ten of these figurines. Really? Yeah, 
yeah, you, you see um, a, a body and a, you can't really say if it's male or female, but there, there are no uh, visible breasts depicted and um, it's got horns. Interesting. Yeah. So, so this horned human recurs cross-culturally. And again, I guess the, the wonder then is, is that an animal human figure? Are they wearing some sort of a horned headdress or are they some sort of a mixture of both animal anatomy and human anatomy conflated, you know, uh, mixed up? And then what do those horns imply and what does it mean to be a horned creature? So I guess that's something that you, you would have dealt with as well in your own research. Not extensively, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it, the question did come up when uh, when they're put together. You know, when you've got the the human figure with the horns, it, it's a little bit for these figurines. It's hard to say what exactly it meant, but the the idea that comes off is definitely a kind of a permeability of human and animal, a kind of crossing over, crossing between. Um, that that perhaps someone in in the role of a shaman or um, or medicine person would have taken in their society. Fantastic. Well, that'll be that'll let us set out of segment two, and maybe in the last segment we can drill down to some of the conclusions, some of the reflections, and maybe some of the ways in which we can think about this relating to rock art and figurines and understanding indigenous cosmology. See you on the flip flop. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our tea Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Welcome back, all you folks in Archeo podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel with the Rock Art Podcast. And we have Shane Davis gracing our association here on this uh, segment, in this episode. And we're talking about these enigmatic, mysterious Harappan figures and also tossing around a number of ideas about the nature of animal-human figures, the association of headdresses, and an understanding of the kinds of imagery being produced cross-culturally around the world and what those might mean to the people that crafted those figures or that employed those figures in various ceremonies, rituals, and what their ideas were about what those meant and how those figured into their culture. So with that, Shane, what's the answer to the mystery? What, uh, what, the, heck were those fi- what the heck were those figures used for and why do they exist? That, that's the question, right? Right. Well, since <laughs> so, you did you since you since you uh, you know did this lengthy report on them, I'm sure you have a very clear cut and cogent answer to that question, don't you? <laughs> Not as clear as I'd like it to be, but I did t- have three takeaways from it. I'm ready. Um, so the first was I, I had a revised typology for them. Oh, the typology that Clark developed had over a hundred different categories for these figurines, which um, for those of you that have developed typologies, know that that's uh, not not always especially useful. (laughs) 
I uh, I looked at the collection and realized that they could more reliably be categorized into earlier figurines, ones made from 3,300 to uh, 2,600 BCE. Mm-hmm. And these earlier ones are very derivative of those found at other sites. They were uh, created in the same manner as uh, some found uh, further north in Raymond Derry uh, to where two parts, two rolls of clay uh, would have been pushed together vertically and then fired uh, in that manner. So that was that was the first type um, I identified. And then the second were the ones created in uh, the integration era of Harappa, roughly 2600 to 1900 BCE. And these ones occur in far greater numbers, which suggests a more local origin. Um, and they were also created differently. They would take uh, two balls of clay and, and kind of mush them together, one being the top and one being the bottom, as opposed to uh, uh, creating a figurine from two vertical lengths of clay. So that sounds like it's, it's a functional yet chronological typology vis-a-vis the, techno- the technology to produce it, the artisans and the way they did them, and also what they dated too. Yes, that's right. It's both. And so that was that was one of my uh, conclusions about the assemblage. And the next was uh, that they, they had a domestic function, um, but there was some sort of uh, taboo, some sort of ritual that prevented them from being deposited in the houses um, themselves um, to where the the end of their social life, so to speak, they would be tossed out uh, with the garbage outside the city walls. So that makes sense. So it's whatever their function was, it was it had a familial level to it. These were figures that were known in a family, in a sort of a, a social setting for the families, and they they obviously had some some importance for them. But after their use life was diminished, they would be thrown away. That's right. Yeah. And the third conclusion I came to was that really the the best way to understand these is through the cognitive approach. I, I did kind of a review of, of all the um, different ways these figurines could be understood. The cognitive one seemed to be the one they were most accessible to. So let's explain that in, in detail. There's a whole discipline called cognitive archaeology. And I'm sure you have some familiarity with that. Could you explain some of that or talk about what this cognitive approach might be and who does it and, and why? Yeah, of course. Um, so cognitive archaeology is the study of how people in the past thought, um, what kind of things shape their cognition and, and how they might have understood the world. And this, this differs from normal archaeological questions uh, about settlement patterns, subsistence methods, and diet and the like. Right. The more cultural historical, I mean, this area, I guess, comes into, I don't know if it's necessarily a processual question, but it is about the life ways and the cosmology, the worldview of these people and what they, what they thought what their passions were, what their dreams were, what their perceptions were. How's that? Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly it. Uh, it's it's always kind of been assumed in uh, in archaeological studies. More recently, uh, in the maybe the past 20, 30 years, it's it's mm-hmm. been kind of the focus of, of a lot of them. 
because in the past, archaeology was obsessed with, first I would say, culture history. You know, mm-hmm. what, what was going on? What did they eat? Where did they live? What did they do? And then also, how old is it? How old is it? How old is it? So you got to figure out first how old it is, what they were doing. But then that third level comes to the, the life ways, the sociopolitical integration, the religious uh, beliefs, the sort of the, 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 I don't know how else to say it, it's sort of the, the gestalt they have for the universe. And you can get to that only through certain data sets. Am I correct? Yeah. Yep. You hit the nail on the head. And, and, and oftentimes those data sets are prehistoric art. Prehistoric art. So they could be paintings or petroglyphs, drawings. They can also be figurines. They can be ground art, like geoglyphs or other things like that, or even incisings and drawings on slates. But some sort of imagery that's being replicated that comes from the mind and is ensconced on stone or right. clay. And one, one of the things uh, in particular uh, about figurines is that they're a, a three-dimensional medium. So, you know, they can be made fairly easily, carried from place to place fairly easily, hidden, broken. But with rock art, you're, you're dealing with a, a different materiality, almost a, a different context, certainly, and, and just the material constraints of the art is different. So, uh, Alan, have, have you dealt with uh, any cognitive um, studies in, in your work? Yeah, you can, you can become the interviewer now. How's that? <laughs> oh, I thought I'd take over. <laughs> yes, you can take over. I was just curious. Yeah, no, I, I published a couple of articles on cognitive neuroscience and archaeology and talked about my work in the Kosos. And I find it so interesting, almost parallel, because I've been obsessed by this class of decorated animal-human figures that exist in the Kosos that are rather unusual. There's hundreds of them. There's an estimate of 700 or even 1,000 of them. And what they date to, what their gender is, and what they could mean, and how they participate in a prehistoric society, and what they might have represented. And so our, our sort of domain and our kind of research themes are not, not that different, are they? Not really. And the cognitive anthropologists, what they try to do is use ways of thinking about the neurophysiology of people, which is cross-cultural. How do we see the world? What do we look at first? As we grow, what things, what features of, the, of a person or even the, the landscape do we focus on? How do we how do we represent a religious view of the world on stone or even in figures or on the landscape? And how does that translate into an artistic mode? And what could that mean? What does it mean to have feathers? What does it mean to have fringe? What does it mean to have a gender predominantly female? What does it mean to, to depict a snake or a bird? And how does that work? What does it mean to wear a horned headdress? And, how, and, and cross-culturally, what does a horned creature imply? 
cosmologically to a, to a culture and even throughout the world do horned animals always feature prominently in the religious metaphor and conceptualizations of cultures there's just a myriad of questions and all of that sort of works together to help us understand the way that prehistoric people's perceptions worked what their belief systems were what their philosophy might have been and it also informs on their ethnicity and their and their language even so the art forms i think both rock art and the plastic forms of art be they figu- figurines and others i could argue are some of the most productive or informative data sets that one could examine of any of the archaeological record. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's still so many questions out there about prehistoric art and what it means and how it affects us. And just uh, definitely very fertile ground for inquiry, fertile ground for research. And people who are studying this are now really em- emphasizing the uh, cognitive realm. Yeah. They're thinking about the neurophysiology. If you're dealing with people who have ritualists, people who have priests, people who have shamans, people who have in medicine men and doctors and other people, it's their job to connect the supernatural to the natural, to be a, an ethereal tether, a thread that will allow people to connect to their ancestors, to some sort of a deity, to feel they have some some connection and some means of living for a reason. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's, that's a connection with those who have passed away or dealing with, uh, you know, intense stress of just making a living and being able to survive and have a sustainable culture. So these people that specialize in these areas are often, as you say, liminal folks. They live in many worlds. They're on the edge both the terrestrial and the supernatural. And they also get to the messages of those kinds of folks using a variety of means to attain an alter state of consciousness to then peer into the mysteries and sort of come back from that other world and provide messages to their tribe, to their culture, and help them through the challenges of life. Right. And, and they often do this with visual aids, things that that can tell stories, you know, things that can inform you about uh, what happens and how it happens and where it might be. And so that and, and definitely in the in the spiritual realm, having visual aids help help humans get to uh, get to understand it a little bit better, at least. And it's the stories, even to this very day, that emanate or resonate people. They motivate them. They provide emotions and persuasion. Every commercial that we see is a story. And those rock art pictures sometimes are exceptionally discreet. And the figurines that you study tell a story. And if we can tease out that story, we can get some glimmers of of little, little bits of answers to some of the questions of how these people were like us and how we're like them. And it makes us more connected, sort of this grand, you know, picture of humanity throughout the millennia. 
Yeah. And, and definitely I've, I've found that when, when you uh, deal with these kind of things, they are kind of like the past reaching, reaching out to touch you, you know, to, I mean, it helps you understand uh, them, but at least with a cognitive approach, it, it gives you a, a window into yourself as well. It does. It does. I always say that when I come back from the field and have seen these images, I feel a glow. <laughs> it's just this sort of overwhelming connection between myself and others of hundreds and thousands of years ago. It's rather amazing. Well, Shane, we did it. We've, we've uh, finished up with the third segment and we're at the end. Anything to tell our uh, listeners in terms of a um, perspective on uh, the nature of our discussion? Mm, I think I mentioned all of it. <laughs> but uh, Alan, thank you for having me on your show. I, I really, really appreciate it. And thank you, Chris. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays. See you next, see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 